Thank you, Todd. Thank you. I'm doing a LinkedIn podcast now. <laughs> like this little height I got here? We are live and hanging out in Southern California from different spots. Um, happy Culture Cast Day, everybody. Welcome, Oliver English, to today's Culture Cast. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Marissa. I really appreciate it. Excited, yeah. to, uh, excited to be with you here today. Coming with to you from Venice Beach, California. Right on. And where in Venice Beach? Are you like in a jungle? Like what is going on back there? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, the home office test studio uh, where we run our production company from. Uh, believe it or not, where we we're sitting used to be a regular front lawn. And over the course of the past couple of years, we have transitioned it originally into a garden and now it's more of a food forest. Um, but there's a hundred different types of plants and trees. I'll give you a little tour here. Amazing. We've got all types of trees and plants, butterflies, hummingbirds, um, a little victory garden, if you will. This is going to be awesome. I actually love the natural sound effects that are happening in the background. And so I know everyone who's jumping on will really enjoy it. And actually, speaking of people jumping on, just wanted to say hi to everybody. The reason why we love that this is live is that we know folks from all around who either know Oliver or want to get to know Oliver um, are jumping on. And so feel free to pop in the comments and say hello and or if there's something that you are just excited that you heard about or a question that you have, um, please feel free to pop that in. So good to see everybody. I can see Stephen, Julie, Nicole, Madison. I mean, there's a lot of people who I'm excited that you all are joining us. So welcome and happy Culture Cast Day. I think everyone knows the reason why we have these live conversations with super interesting leaders in society is to really learn from um, people like you, Oliver, on what each of us can do to really create a sustainable culture where everyone can thrive. You know, whether it's you, yourself, the people around you, your family, or if you want to apply it to the work environment, the teams that you're a part of or the teams that you lead and support, it's really, that's what we're trying to do through our culture cast. So I want to get started. I know that you are the co-founder and CEO of Common Table Creative. I don't want to jump into that right now, though. I think we'll have that as an anchor point. I really want to talk about you. Like, dude, what was your journey? I mean, I think everyone knows that you definitely have um, an affinity for, and I'll just say a straight up relationship with food. And I'm going to let you tell that story. So let's talk about how you even started this journey towards common ta table creative and what were you doing? How did you get there? Thank you so much for asking the question. I appreciate it. And you're right. I, you could call it a deep connection to food for sure. Um, my parents met at cooking school and they opened restaurants together when I was, since when I was very, very young, even before I was born. Uh, and my dad ran the kitchen. My mom ran the front of house. And so I grew up most of my life 
either growing up on banquettes, but then eventually, you know, washing dishes, busting tables, working behind the bar, uh, working pretty much every job you can imagine in the restaurant business and learning, I think, a love for food and people and the connection that that brings uh, through the lens of the restaurant business. Uh, growing up and then kind of into my teenage years, I worked more jobs in the business, ended up studying hospitality uh, and restaurant management development in school. I worked for a number of uh, restaurant tours and chefs around the world for many years, uh, eventually growing into a role designing, developing, and opening restaurants uh, around the world. Worked for Danny Meyer, Alain Ducasse, um, Daniel Ballou uh, at 11 Madison Park. And then for my family restaurant company, um, I was opening restaurants in Asia, Middle East, the Caribbean. And I was pretty sure that that was my path in life, to be honest with you. Um, up until a couple of years ago, I thought I was going to be in the restaurant business forever. And that's where I was going. And about six years ago, I was living and working in a restaurant in Abu Dhabi to open a new restaurant. And I was sitting at the bar one night. In those days, I was training the staff to get everything up and running, liaison, being the liaison between ourselves and uh, our local partners and training the staff. One night, two weeks before we were set to open, I was sitting at the bar, ordered a big steak and potatoes, side salad, big glass of wine, whole spread. And about halfway through my meal, I looked down and cut it to my steak and kind of fell back and looked at all this food and was like, wait a minute, where did all this food come from? I've been in the desert for a couple weeks, couple months, hadn't seen a farm, hadn't seen a fresh body of water. How did all this food get here and yeah. where did it come from? And I asked our chef to come out and we had a long conversation about where each one of the ingredients came from and what it took to get there. The boats, trains, planes, et cetera, when it was harvested. And I slowly started to realize the incredible environmental impact of this meal. Then I saw how much food was being wasted, et cetera. And I realized in this moment that despite having grown up in the restaurant business and having parents that are chef, et cetera, I never asked the question, where does food come from? I had never thought, honestly, that it may have a broader impact on the world around us. So I started reading everything I could, watching everything I could. And a couple of months later, I was opening a restaurant in the Bahamas. I said, can you help me find a local farmer? And I ended up meeting this guy named Sakane who would tr change the trajectory of my life. Spent three hours with him. He had a love and passion and joy for food and farming. He told me he was dealing with the effects of climate change and the effects of 90% of food being imported to the Bahamas. He and his family and team were trying to revitalize this little piece of organic land next to the airport to feed their community. And he had this love and passion and joy for food and farming, even despite the incredible challenges we face. I said, more people need to meet farmers. And my brother and I, who was, a, he was a, the, film academy, the New York Film Academy at that time, said, let's go film an interview with this, with this guy, Sakane. And that was the beginning of what would become a, sort of an epic six-year journey to work on a documentary that is about the future of food. And we started interviewing farmers that led to other experts related to the, the, food, the food system and sustainability, climate scientists, nutritionists, policy makers, educators, looking at with population growth and climate change and all these challenges we face. How do we feed and nourish humanity into the future? What are the healthiest diets? And how do we ensure that all folks have access to healthy food moving forward for everybody? And so we've been working on that project for six years. And in the process, we ended up starting a production company to focus on the future of food. All of these food companies, NGOs, and nonprofits we were filming with started asking us for help with short form videos. Wow. So we started a production company, Common Table Creative. Um, we work with NGOs, food companies, and nonprofits around the world to share stories about the future of food. And this year, we're coming out with our first feature documentary about the future of food and laying out for humanity sort of a very optimistic, 
tangible path forward. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. I mean, thank you for the quick run up from being a child all the way up through sitting in your front jungle, your food jungle. But I'm really curious, you actually formally studied. So you studied in life because it was a family business and you learned your way through and lived your way through restaurants. But I think about being formally trained, you know, I'll say that by chefs, your parents, as well, going to school in restaurant and hospitality management. And not once, I mean, I'm, this is a real question, not once did you all have a conversation in school about where food comes from or even the topic of sustainability? Do you remember any of that? You're, you're exactly right. And I think okay. that, real, that realization itself was what was so shocking. Okay. You know, it was the realization that someone who was as intimately involved in the world as one could arguably be, there was a big missing component in education about the environmental impact of our food choices. And I think that realization was in particular shocking to me. Because I was like, if someone like me who grew up in this business and should be connected to it is connected to it, yeah. we're missing this fundamental piece. What does that mean for the, the average person who didn't go to hospitality school or work in the restaurant business their whole life? And what I realized was that, that it wasn't necessarily the problem or issue or challenge of any one restaurant or any one chef. It was yeah. symbolic of a broader disconnect, disconnection that it exists in our society with regards to how we are producing our goods, what it takes to produce them, whether we're talking about food or fashion or energy or anything. We've, there's been a disconnection between our consumption and what it takes the earth to produce those materials for that consumption. And I think there's a shift happening now in awareness about what that means. But that was the realization that if we are so disconnected from food and we don't think about what happens when we order takeout or we get something from the grocery store or we go to the fast food place. When we're so disconnected from that and we don't realize that our consumption has an impact on the environment, yeah. there's no amount of fast fashion that's going to uh, offend us. There's no amount of airplane travel or you know diesel cars that are going to offend us. So I think it was the, the realization of a broader disconnection that is happening in society. There's starting to be a shift towards it, uh, a different yeah. way of thinking and we're trying to help with that with the doc. But you are absolutely right. And the, 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 the understanding and the learning and teachings are starting to change now. But it was that initial realization of like, there is a huge, there's a larger disconnection here than I originally could have thought. And I think that uh, earth shattering moment internally for me was, yeah. it was a wake up call and uh, inspired yeah. me to learn as much as I could about this. I, I think you are such a good example and not to stereotype the generations that have entered the workforce and are really the biggest generation today in the workforce, which is, you know, the millennials that represent, I want to say like 60% of the workforce today, if you look at all of the generations and how purpose driven that, you know, as millennials, they are and instead of someone like you who is an entrepreneur and going out there and pursuing your passion many millennials go inside of companies and try to figure out how do I align my purpose and my passion to how I'm contributing to this company. And I think what's interesting is I happen to be in, um, I went to Ted last week for the first time, you know, Ted talks and people come up on stage and they, they talk and there was this amazing environmental data scientist. I fell in love with her because she talked about this millennial generation who was saying this generation and the next. So the, 
Gen Z and the post Gen Z can be the first generation that can be sustainable. And I think it's everything that you're talking about where it's not only up to systems and society to make sure that they provide that knowledge and learning, but that every individual actually has a part in it. And so I thought, wow, interesting. I don't know if you've heard of her, you should look her up, Hannah Ritchie. Fascinating in that she takes all sorts of data from um, human data to environmental data and has a way of just telling a story where it actually is palatable and um, relatable. And I think that's in meeting you and getting to know you, you make this connection to food relatable. And so, um, you know, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, if you've heard about Hannah and what your thoughts on are on this generation. Well, well, thank you for that, that comment. I appreciate that. I've not heard of Hannah yet, but she sounds like something I should absolutely look into. And with regards to the question about the generation, I feel the exact same way. I feel like the millennials and Gen Z, it is our opportunity right now to transform everything we do on this planet. And I think we are the first generation to realize and recognize that doing things differently is not a negative. Doing things differently when we produce, create, make goods and services and we sell them, we can do that in a way that continues to degrade and destroy the planet with the way that we produce things and we make things and we distribute and we consume them and we get rid of them, or we can source things in a way that regenerate. We can source things, whether it's food or fuel or clothes in a way that regenerates and restores the natural ecosystems of this planet through the ways that we produce them through agroforestry and regenerative agriculture and different ways of ecologically reproduce producing goods that we need for humanity. And I think our generation realized that we are at a tipping point. If we don't fundamentally shift the way that we do business, the way that we think about this idea of endless economic growth, we can have growth, but we have to do it in a way that is enhancing the ecosystems of nature through time. Otherwise, yeah. we're going to run out of resources. And I think our generation is, is incredibly empowered. And whether they're starting their own company or they're going to work for a bigger company and they're bringing those ideas of sustainability and regeneration, regeneration and circular economies to that new company, that's also incredibly valuable because those companies have big reach and have big opportunities to create real impact. So I think it's the philosophical shift that's important from degenerative to regenerative. And yes. we can do that in our own individual companies. We can do that for a bigger company. And we can certainly, first and foremost, do that in our own personal lives wherever we are in that spectrum. I love that. And actually, I would love to jump into um, some definitions and, you know, through your eyes, as you think about the word regeneration, as well as sustainability, how would you define it? And what's the difference? It's a fantastic question. Um, we get, and I get that a lot. So the way that I've been taught to describe it and the way that I've come to understand it, really, and this is from through our company, we've been, you know, we've had the opportunity to visit 60 plus farms all around the world, uh, in India, Germany, throughout the United States, interviewed dozens and dozens of farmers. And my understanding and appreciation of the difference is that sustainability is, I'm trying to get the angle here, sustainability is ma maintaining the status quo for an ongoing perspective. So if your soil, the health of your soil was at a seven out of 10, it would, the practices that you were doing would keep it at a seven moving forward, right? That's yep. also with population growth and all these other things happening. Regeneration is a philosophy, but also when thinking about it in farms, it's how do all of the different components that go into creating the system 
enhance the overall growth potential and health of the system through time. So what that looks like on a farm is kind of what you see behind me. Yeah. How do the how do you know the inclusion of healthy trees and multiple different types of plants, biodiversity, healthy soils, and animal integration? How do that how does that system enhance the health of the whole system through time? So instead of in the previous example, it was a seven stays seven. Yeah. With this with this system that we create, it goes from a seven to an eight to a nine through time. And with where we are on the planet right now, with the destruction of ecosystems that we already see with climate change. Sustainability is not going to cut it. We cannot continue to sustain the little that we have. We need to create systems in nature, like what we're seeing behind me, but also yeah. systems in companies. We need to think holistically about the entire company, not just, not just profit, but the health of the employees, the mental health of the employees, how that company is making their goods, how is it being sourced. It's thinking about it as a whole system that grows in health through time versus stays the same. And we are, like I said, we're at a place in humanity and the human experience where we cannot afford to be sustainable. We are at a place where we must move towards regeneration. And in so doing, we will create healthier ecosystems and healthier products in the process for us along the way. I, I love that. I love that um, there is a difference between sustainability and you kind of hear that in the word. It's like maintenance, right? Like leave it exactly the same way you found it. Or if you mm -hmm. pick it up, make sure that you leave it exactly the same way you found it. And I hear you. I mean, I think with, I'll just say global warming, when people freak out over the weather, like this is unusual weather. And I always joke around, but not really. It's global warming, right? And so you think about mm -hmm. just what is happening in the atmosphere and, and um, how the generations leading up to us have kind of treated the world, right? Totally. It's not a joke, but I think that's an example of you can't just continue to live life as is. I totally. love the notion of regeneration in so many ways, how you brought it up. I get it from the whole biodiversity and ecosystem of all things living, you know, as I listen to you, and how do all of those combine together so that all can thrive and grow. I love that you brought that into and I think this is why when I first met you fully nerded out with you on like what that means to be regenerative inside a large company. And I love that you pulled in the fact that it's not only about all right, a company is here to deliver a service, create a service and deliver it or a product that, that the company needs to think about their full ecosystem, starting with, you know, you use the word humanity so many times already, but with people. And what is it that they're doing within the organization to ensure that it's not just about leaving it the way you found it, right? That actually the company is better because the people are better as a result mm -hmm. of their experience in whatever it is that they're doing inside the company. And so mm -hmm. I'm nerding with you as you talk about regeneration. And by the way, it feels like there's such an industry for that too, as it relates to preserving, um, and this is probably more superficial, but actually also from a health standpoint, there's a lot going down in Mexico in terms of these regenerative spas for, you know, adults who are pro-aging right and they want to mm -hmm. make sure they're eating well and that they well what they eat and how they take care of their bodies through exercise or movement you know regenerates them either they're you know um, overcoming an illness or they're just um, increasing quality of life while they age so i just said a lot 
But I want to bring it back to a point of the role that food plays in our own personal regeneration. Say more about that. Thank you so much for bringing it up. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think also, you know, back to the point of the millennials and Gen Z, I think we've seen our parents and grandparents struggle with health challenges. I think, you know, not I think, but I know that America is going through one of the biggest periods of unhealth um, that the nation has ever seen, you know, between obesity and diabetes. And uh, I think we as a generation and the one below us sees that we want to do things differently. And we, in fact, we need to do things differently. And health is not about doing whatever you want for your entire life, eating processed food that's uh, intentionally inexpensive, you know, kind of thrown yeah. upon you and then taking a pill when you get older. No, health is about the long-term preventative maintenance, the positive preventative maintenance of your body through time. And in that, I think there is a, there is a deep, deep connection between the healthiest, most nutrient dense food mm-hmm. and the healthiest, most sustainable types of farms. And this is also kind of a bigger philosophical idea about the way that we grow food is exactly how it ends up treating our body. So if we grow food and we spray mm-hmm. it with tons of pesticides and we grow things in massive fields, there, there's very little to no nutrient dense quality in that food. That's why you can eat a lot of calories at you know, a fast food place, but not have a lot, not have a lot of nutrients. That's why you're yeah. hungry immediately. Whereas food that comes from highly mineralized, highly mineralized soil, organic, regenerative, biodynamic farms that are treating their soils with health and taking care of their soils is going to have the most nutrient density in that food. And the more locally you're having it, the higher nutritional qualities that's going to exist in that food as well. So if we are sourcing food in a way that is best for our health, local from sustainable farms that are, it comes from healthy soil, we are automatically supporting a healthier food system. We are automatically supporting local farms, which are the most resilient, medium and small farms, organic biodynamic farms that are within our area. That is the key to resilience. That is the key to human health. And that is the key to environmental health. And those things are all very, very connected. So it's about taking a holistic approach to the way that we want to live into the future. And I think we've seen the older generations before us, again, they were responding to different times. So it's not all throwing them shade, but I think it's upon every generation to look throughout history about what's been done, assess our time and space and say, what do we need to do to move forward? in a way that's going to create healthy ecosystems, equitable ecosystems, healthy food access, and an economy that doesn't just solely focus on GDP, but thinks about the entire system, the health and well-being of humanity at the core of that system. Um, But human health and environmental health are directly linked. And the more that we can think about that, the more positive it will be for everybody in the whole system. I love that human health and environmental health are directly linked, obviously. I think... um, you know, when I hear you talk about if you eat locally or organically raised food, how how can people find that? You know, I can think off the top of my head, I'll go to the farmer's market. You know, that normally happens in certain communities or in most communities. How else can people find if they're new, right, a noob to actually now thinking about food differently? Where can they find locally grown, or you know, biodynamic, organically grown food? Absolutely. And I will say also the one the one caveat here is that, and this comes up a lot, is that, that the organic food from the farmer's market is oftentimes a little bit more expensive than the counterpart yeah. at the grocery store. And I do want to acknowledge that. And that is because the system has been set up for the past 
eight decades in such a way that favors through subsidies the production of the cheap alternative, which makes by comparison, the organic local thing a little bit more expensive. And so I am appreciative of that and realize that that is a real challenge. Um, that being said, you don't have to go to the farmer's market every week, but once a month yeah. is also a, a huge help. You know, okay. buying something locally a little bit is helpful, or even buying something at the local section from the grocery store is also a positive vote with your dollar. Um, but on our impact website for our documentary, we have partnered with the American Farmland Trust, which is one of the biggest and oldest organizations in the United States that works on farmland conservation. They have uh, one of the largest databases of farmers markets in the United States. So you can go to the Feeding Tomorrow Films website, the impact page section, which I can provide you a link to. And Excellent. American Farmland Trust, you can type in your zip code and they will find you the local farms nearest to you. They've got one of the biggest databases in the game. And part of what we're trying to do with our documentary as well is provide individual solutions for folks at the end of the film. Yeah. But then through our impact website, make sure that you have the ongoing uh, resources that you need to follow up and whatever it is. And whether that's supporting your farmer's market, you know, locally, which is amazing, or growing some food and flowers in your front yard. It doesn't need to be a jungle forest, but it can be a little bit can be great and helpful and yeah. delicious. It could be composting. It could be um, a number of other things that are, you know, really impactful in the way that you do things. I love that. And I love that you have those resources where it's, it's actually one small step. It doesn't have to be every day, but if it's a new direction that people are inspired to take as a result of listening to this conversation, it is at least take that step and try it. And, at minimum, when you are at the grocery store, look for the local or organic section and try one thing, you know, in the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I get that because, and I, I appreciate that you brought up the fact that uh, the way food systems are today and how food travels and gets to us and the cost of food, I can see why in certain um, parts of society, especially where people are living wide above poverty, right? And the easiest food that they can get access to because it's cheap and it's highly advertised and it tastes good, you know, is typically fast food. And while that might sustain for today, so going back to sustainability, it might actually put you in a worse place than you were before you ate it. But um, I, I think when pe people don't think about the long term, it's just about getting sustenance today. And so I, I, there's, that's probably a bigger topic on how do we find ways to ensure that there's access to, you know, wholesome, just locally grown food for, you know, different parts of communities that don't have access to it just because of the economy and kind of where they are in society. And so I'm glad you said that. Um, but then the second thing too, you know, this whole relationship with food, it's really personal to me. You know, we talk about the generations before us and, you know, my dad, for example, you know, he's been having a lot of heart issues, you know, also has diabetes. And again, it's not um, my parents' fault that they lived a certain life, but now there is a direct correlation to how he feels when he eats um, food with salt or processed food, you know, and it, you can see it happening in front of you. And so it's personal to me when you talk about that and that, you know, my husband and I go out of our way to like, all right, how do we cook a really excellent meal for my mom and dad and actually show them that it doesn't need to be out of a package or it doesn't need to have all of these um, spices, including a lot of salt in order for it to, you know, to taste really good and to be filling. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. anyway, 
Um, you brought this up too about the American Farmland Trust. I think you and I got into this in another conversation. This generation of farmers. So not only are we talking about how can we create this through this generation, millennials and the Gen Zs that are coming up in the world. You know, you and I talked about the average age of farmers and how to me that also is a potentially dying profession unless you can inspire, you know, this next generation to choose that as a profession. So I think you and I were debating is the average age 60? Is it 50? Tell me what you know about farming in general and how people can get involved. Absolutely. So the average age is 67. Um, 67. Of, See, I of, the, of the American farmer. No, absolutely. And you're, you're absolutely right. It is both one of the biggest challenges that we face in the country is the aging out of farmers, but also it could be one of the greatest opportunities that we have to inspire an entire generation of farmers to reconnect with the land, to have a um, agroecological relationship with farming um, and to take us into a whole new direction around the world. And I think one thing we're, we've been really trying to do with our filmmaking is to highlight and celebrate farmers as some of the most incredibly inspiring um, stewards of our land and people in our country. I think for a long time, you know, many, many years ago, everyone would know the, the farmer in the village, right? I don't know exactly how many years ago, but a long time, <laughs> right. Dep depending, depending on where you are in the world, yeah, one place right, in right. the world that's still the case. But over time, we have become more disconnected from farmers. We don't see the tractors rolling through the village. Or you live in a city and you never see a farmer. You just go to the grocery store. And so we've lost sight of how I think important and pivotal the role of the farmer is to the American people and to the people of the world. You know, we don't have food to eat. This is obvious, but nothing else matters. You know, nothing else. The world does not go round. And so yeah. I think if we can, as a culture and as a society, appreciate how important farmers are, I think we can incentivize yeah. more people to go into the profession. Also, politically, we need to, at the local level and also at the federal level, we need to incentivize and provide farmers with resources to do that. One of the biggest issues right now is young farmers can't get access to land. And so we need to, through the federal government, through the, the farm bill, through local governments, we need to get, we need to have carrots, literally. Yeah. We need to reward young farmers for getting out to land. We need to give existing farmers, you know, tax breaks or whatever the mechanism is to incentivize young people to get out there. And young people, we do know this compared to the older folks are more inclined to be sort of going that e agroecological direction. They've got young families, yeah. they're out there. They want their kid to be able to walk out to the field and have a strawberry and not yeah. have to worry about the toxic poison of their grandfather. So I think if we can both from the top down incentivize young people to go into agriculture and for it to be cool and rewarded, and also from the bottom up culturally, we can, as a society, agree that these people are incredible stewards of our planet. They're on the front lines of dealing with climate change. They are taking care of the land. They're providing us healthy food. You know, we should take we should be taking care of them. And if we can elevate the role of the farmer in American society, which I believe it absolutely deserves to yes. be, and I met amazing farmers around the world, um, we can incentivize the next generation of American farmers. People from all backgrounds all around the country taking up this cause. But the farmers and the consumers have to do it together. It doesn't yeah. work without one one or the other group. Yeah, I totally hear you. And it's not only it's farmers, consumers, but it's also, um, I'll say, good citizens around the world who 
actually acknowledge that as a pathway to growth. You know, I think about this next generation coming up. And one thing that I'm just so um, passionate about is all around how do you help elevate this emerging middle class that still needs somehow a step up, right? And I think now more than ever post pandemic, it might even be harder with the way the world is changing as it relates to jobs because of technology, et cetera, and the skills that you need. And it feels like there could be a movement here on how do you give access to the right kind of, I'll just call it education or hands-on education, as well as resources like grants um, and access to land and money to start your farm for this next generation. Like, I think it's an it's a easy choice for someone who I'll just say is, hasn't figured out what they want to do from a career standpoint yet, or someone who's unskilled and actually wants to take a step up in their life. And so you just made me think about that. That That's interesting. And, no, and also that could help us. There's been yeah. a huge hollowing out of rural America because farms have gotten bigger and fewer at the same time. And so a lot of the people used to live out in rural parts of the country and move to the cities. That's also, I think, helped contribute to the political divide that exists you just have yeah. more people you know people living more increasingly isolated and a lot of our societal problems and also opportunities i think can can be tied back to the way we grow food the way we think about growing food and the the direct and indirect impacts that has had on the country more broadly but i totally agree with you that the revival and regeneration and rethinking of our food system must be intertwined with and, re- and coupled with the growth and prosperity of the nation uh, of Americans. And we should incentivize people to get back onto the land to connect. You know, even with remote working, they can still have a side job, you know, you know, whatever it is, um, zoom, Zooming here and there. But there is, I think, going to be a big wave of people moving back to the land and just connecting to nature, too. I think that's another thing. Yeah. We've become increasingly disconnected from the natural world in our I do it too. You're scrolling, you're scrolling, you're scrolling, you're scrolling. And you're like, yeah, no, I should go out and sit in the garden. And I think the more that we can connect people back to food, people can go spend time on farms. Um, it's a, it's a pretty magical place to be when you can spend some time on a farm talking with a farmer. And that's something that we hope to help inspire um, in big, big, in big ways, but also in small ways with the front garden and that kind of thing. Yeah. I think you're onto something. I mean, the fact that you have your own food jungle, you know, in your home and at your business I think there is a new kind of, and then just forgive me, this is just a bad analogy, I'm going to say it anyway, like there's a new kind of Disneyland that can be created that actually is a living, working, hands-on experience where people can learn how to do that. And so Mm -hmm. hmm, that's like a note that I am taking, like, how do we do that? Um, I think you send it. Yeah, go ahead. No, just one final, one final note on one final note on that. It is a Disneyland. And during the, over the course of the past three years, I should say, okay. our team worked to build a regenerative school farm at a public middle school in Santa Monica. And we were super inspired by the film. All these experts across the fields told us the best way to connect kids to food and farming is to obviously get them out in, and actually have, have them have that tangible experience. So we built a quarter acre regenerative school farm and we hired a farmer. And every kid that goes to this public middle school in Santa Monica is out on the farm once or twice a week. They're learning about composting, about biodiversity, about growing food. The food that is uh, the extra food or food waste from the cafeteria is now coming out to compost bins on the farm. Soon we'll be growing food that'll go back into the cafeteria. We're doing the whole full circle. 
And kids go crazy. Kids go crazy out here. Kids absolutely love running around the farm, composting, growing things. And I think that's how we start and get them excited. They get their parents excited. And then we as a society realize how cool and important this all is as well. I love that. And actually, I love that you brought that up. Which middle school is it? So that people, in case they want to know about it, and we'll also create yeah. a link to it. It's called the Will Rogers Learning Community. It's Got a public it. middle school in Santa Monica. We started the farm about three years ago. We actually just had the, uh, the Earth Day Festival last year. I made a bunch of plant-based tacos for everybody. Nice. Um, but we literally have parents come to us and say, and I've had this happen multiple occasions, my child never used to eat kale. My child never used to eat green beans. Now they love kale. Now they love green beans because they saw how it grew and they were part of that experience. And by the way, here's the compost because when they learned about that in class, they came back and asked us why, why, we, why we weren't doing it at home and we decided to start. And so it opens up this broader conversation within the community and also to the parents. The kids become yeah. these ambassadors and they kind of go healthcare ambassadors, sustainability ambassadors, and they go out into the world to their parents um, and sort of in a gentle way, start to bring them again along this journey together. Amazing. And actually, I think that could be a good model too, to bring to other communities where, you know, if people are interested in doing that, like, how can you bring that? I know you and I are sitting in Southern California right now, but to places like, um, like one of my colleagues, like he grew up in Downey or in, in Compton, like, how do we find places like that where you can bring it to those communities as well? to also include, you know, that next generation in learning about that. That's, that's excellent. I didn't realize you already created a Disneyland. We created Disneyland and you're right. It is the first working model, but uh, yeah. one of the goals with our, the impact campaign of our film is to inspire. And in some cases to actually help schools across the country, create farms and gardens. And I also agree with you that th- this idea needs to be in every school in every community in every zip code throughout the entire country. I mean, imagine if every single school in the country had a school farm or garden. Every single school had a composting program. Every single school was growing some food for the, for the cafeteria. I think we would grow and we would experience an incredible transformation in our society. And people who are ecologically minded, who care about one another, yeah. who care about their impact. Um, it would have profound impacts for the American experience and for, therefore, in addition, would inspire many people around the world uh, as well. Totally. Well, I think there's an interesting conversation happening in our comments. I'm going to bring it up because Yesenia is on here. I'm going to bring her question back up here, which is, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is economic or educational privilege tied to farm-to-table lifestyle? And then Guillermo's on here too as a point of view, but I want to get your point of view. I mean, what do you think? And I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I think everything forever has been farm to table and farm to table could just mean growing stuff from your front yard and bringing it to your table. But Mm -hmm. I do agree with you that there is, and what we were talking about earlier, there is some sort of a perception around the idea that the farm to table experience is only for a certain group of people. And I think that it might be now because it's a little bit more expensive, but it absolutely should not be. Farm to table is for everybody. Farm to table just means that you get something that came locally and you maybe knew the farmer and there is some relationship there. And the goal must be that every single person across the entire country and world is connected and has the opportunity to be farm to table, but it shouldn't be this faraway thing that only a certain amount of people have access to. 
it should be the standard. Yeah. And that's why with our film, with the policy changes we advocate for, and with the local changes we think people could have the opportunity to be a part of, that's what we're advocating for. We are advocating for cultural shifts from the bottom up and then also from policy shifts from the bottom down that help transition our society from a place where only a certain group of people socioeconomically can do the farm to table thing, go to the farmer's market every week to a place in the not so distant future, because we need to do this from a health perspective and we need to do this from an environmental perspective. And it's fundamentally as a society, the right thing to do, everybody must have access to healthy food and must have be, be able to go to the farmer's market, support local farming. So it is an ideal that we are not quite there yet, but it must be something yeah. that everyone has access to. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, Yesenia, we can probably have a much broader conversation around this. I just think about personally, you know, economic or educational privilege tied to farm to table lifestyle. I mean, I think about growing up in LA and a product of the LA Unified School District. So public education, my parents were immigrants and we didn't have a whole lot of money growing up. And I think what saved us, you know, aside from, yes, we ate a, just a combination of a lot of foods, whatever, whether it was what the school was serving us. You know, one thing that I do remember growing up is that, you know, my parents really valued the ability to cook and have a meal together as a family. And then growing up to like these potlucks, we, we would eat the most interesting food. Um, may not be exactly from a farm, but it certainly wasn't purchased in a package and put on a table. And so I think about it's just being conscious about, I would say, even cooking your food. I, I don't even think that we had organic food growing up. However, we had a lot of home cooked food because that was just a way of kind of making your dollar stretch, you know, as a family. So I, I think today, unfortunately, it feels like because um, farmers markets and buying organic also comes with a premium, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And so I think... Um, you know, Charlie's on here. By the way, Charlie, good to see you, dude, on the, on this call. But now he has a question for you, Oliver, on how we get our government to incent the right kind of farming. I know you've talked about oh, that. Th thank you, Charlie, for yeah. bringing that up. So this is actually a very poignant time because uh, this year the federal farm bill is coming up. And for those of you who are not fully aware, um, the federal farm bill is the biggest piece of legislation in the entire country uh, that deals with farming and food assistance programs. It is really a combination of the federal farm subsidies that the U.S. government supports farmers with, visa direct subsidies and also insurance. And also it has to do directly with food uh, access, EBT, food stamps, all mm -hmm. of the various food assistance programs that exist. It's all combined into one piece of legislation. Right now, um, and, and every five years it is up for renegotiation. It's often one of the only bipartisan things people agree on. It's heavily influenced by uh, special interest is, is probably not surprising. But right now there is a big program and a big effort to positively influence the 2023 Farm Bill in support of regenerative agriculture. And I think that's one of the most important things we can do right now. We've partnered with a group called Regenerate America, who are some of our friends from a sister organization called Kiss the Ground. And they are doing some amazing work right now uh, at the federal level to help influence the transition and the support of more U.S. dollars to regenerative agriculture. And so on the Feeding Tomorrow Films website, through the impact page, we also have the opportunity to support their work uh, at the federal level. Uh, and then at the local level, um, look into your local food policy councils. 
Um, whatever, most cities have them now. It started in LA, it was the biggest one, but it sort of branched out. Um, the local food policy council in the city, wherever you are, is often the best vehicle for transforming local food systems um, and helping support local food production, various types of sustainable, organic, regenerative food production. Um, I see the question about, you know, getting rid of GMOs as well. So support at the federal level, but also support at the local level. Yeah. Oh, thanks for all those tips. I mean, um, the federal food bill that's coming out, but also going to your local food policy council. I didn't realize that those even existed. So I think that's really helpful. And I think another piece too, especially for, I see a few of you on here who have worked or who currently work in large companies that are food related. I'll just say that, you know, and I know you and I talked about this in a conversation, Oliver, is that this huge commitment to ESG, you know, it's kind of a big deal with large, especially public facing companies where there are shareholders and now ESG, which is an acronym for environmental, social, social and governance. Like what are companies doing not only to put their product and service out in the world, but how are they taking care of the environment? You know, how are they reversing their full on carbon footprint? And at the same time, um, investing socially in their communities and in their people. So I think that's a way too to get involved, you know, with your kind of surroundings with you. And if you don't know about ESG, I mean, everyone's starting to publish their reports. I think it's fascinating to pick them up and see what is it that these companies are actually doing? You know, what, what is their true action around this and how can you get involved? So right, and we and you know this is you know better than most. Yeah. We need companies to be part of the solution. Yes, we are. We are all in this together. And you know, in, in yesteryears, it was the big bad companies doing the bad things, and the environmentalists would yell at them. And there's certainly a lot of companies who are not yes. doing great things. But there's a lot of companies who are doing really great things, and we need, you know, strategic, thoughtful, loving partnerships where we say, hey, you guys are going to go do what you're going to do in the world. But companies realize that you also have a responsibility to do right by the people and the planet. And you're not going to be in business very long if you don't. And the good thing about the great awareness amongst millennials and Gen Z is they're not going to put up with and support a company right. who is greenwashing. They're not going to put up with and support a company that is destroying, you know, e natural ecosystems and get and growing and using palm oil in their, in their products. It's just, they're not going to, it's not going to cut it anymore. And that is the beauty of companies thinking about this idea of regeneration. It's not just the right thing to do, but it is the way that we move forward. If you are sourcing your products and creating products, whether it's food or fashion or whatever, in a way yeah. that regenerates and restores the earth and you're taking care of your employees and people are buying your goods, that's a beautiful situation where everybody wins. That's and I right. think companies of the future are the ones that realize and appreciate and execute on the fact that they have a pivotal role to play in the future of sustainability. And it's not only the right thing to do, it is the only way forward. Yeah, I agree. And actually, it's these companies can only survive and sustain and actually regenerate themselves if they are embracing this next generation that's coming into the workforce right now and aligning with, you know, purpose-driven human beings who want to be doing the right things. Um, I know we're going to be coming up at the top of the hour in about 10 minutes or so. I want to make sure we talk about your film. So when I ran into you, we were at South by Southwest. And we've, you've already referenced, you know, your film. Let's talk about like, where can people see the film, you know, and tell me about what your experience has been so far and the reaction as you've done these screenings. 
Um, so it, it, the past six to eight months have been incredibly exciting and exhilarating. It's taken us six years to produce and create the film. It, during that time, we also did a bunch of shorter form projects for our company as well. But uh, the flagship has taken quite some time and has been uh, deeply enjoyable, deeply humbling. Uh, and I'm very proud of what we ultimately came to, to bring to the world. And we've met so many inspiring leaders across the country from different backgrounds, different stripes, in different industries, but all connected to food somehow. And I think sharing the stories of these innovators is something that over the years has been incredibly positive uh, and inspiring for, for me and for our team. And so we've been doing, for the past eight months, we've been doing film festivals and, and doing screenings at top environmental conferences around the world. We got, we won uh, the award for the best environmental doc at uh, the, the Los Angeles Documentary Film Festival. We did Amazing. screenings at COP20, COP27. Uh, in Egypt, we did screenings during Sundance, during South by Southwest. Uh, in May, which is not actually on Monday, we were going to the Bahamas International Film Festival and then the Riviera International Film Festival in Italy for the European premiere. So we are um, rocking and rolling. And I can't speak yet to, I can't give away exactly our final distribution yet. Um, okay. We will have that. Uh, I'll be able to confirm that in the next month or so. I would welcome people to send in their email if they want to learn about when we, we can give that information away. I'll have more information in the next, definitive information in the next one or two months. I've been told not to disclose anything yet. Nice. Um, but if you are interested in seeing the film, please share your email with us or through the chat or whatever it is. And I will make sure to um, keep you up to date. You can also follow Feeding Tomorrow on Instagram or my own personal Instagram, Oliver English. And I'll have a lot of updates there about the release of the film. Um, but it has been very exciting. And what, what I'm most excited about is every time we do a screening, we have hour-long Q&As, and people want to know what they can do to be part of a more sustainable future. And it is becoming a vehicle to have broader conversations about the role that each one of us can play in creating a healthier, more sustainable world, first and foremost through thinking about our food choices differently, but then that sort of naturally extending into a broader uh, curiosity about the, the positive role that we can play in the world. But the film is called Feeding Tomorrow. And um, I will be very excited to share more with you moving forward. Maybe if you send the, I can drop the uh, a link to the trailer maybe in the chat and yeah. folks can, folks can watch that. Um, but follow the Instagram for more updates. Uh, and I hope to have more updates soon, but I'm, I'm very excited about it. And I would just say it's a very positive, actionable look at the future of food. It is a vision that suggests that we don't have to wait for some faraway technology to save us. We know how to fix agriculture. We know how to restore mm -hmm. and regenerate the ecosystems of the planet. We know the healthiest forms of growing food. We know the healthiest diets for people. Um, we know how to increase healthy food access for members of all community. We're doing it in underserved communities and in farmland throughout the entire country today. We know how to do it. The solutions we have are already here. Now it's about expanding and inspiring the scaling of these solutions, which will be different in different parts of the world, different parts yeah. of the country, but taking the philosophy and then applying that through communities around the world and around the country. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that it's already here and it's just leaning into it and enabling people to figure out how to do it right within their communities. We're sitting in it. We're, sit we're sitting in it. I mean, amazing. Um, I, I also wanted to go back and I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation because you glossed over this quickly, but 
but I'm really curious, you know, you talked about Sakana, the farmer that you met when you were still in hospitality and just learning about food in general, but then you also worked not only for your family, but you also worked with amazing chefs like Danny Meyer, for example, I think everyone knows that name with those two. Um, what is one big learning just in the conversations or being around them that you've taken with you and, you know, in this journey? And I appreciate that. We do yeah. a San Diego event. Yeah, absolutely. Charlie, we'll do one. <laughs> um, for me. And I think this is also true. Having grown up in the hospitality business, I think the, le the early lessons that I learned from some of those giants and that I also learned just from being in the business, growing up in it and working in it for so many years is that the power of hospitality and the importance of hospitality in how you see people, how you hear people, and most importantly, how you make them feel is an idea and a quality that transcends any industry, any part of the world. It is fundamental to the human experience. And the principles of hospitality that guide those giants and is the reason they have become so successful. Um, a guy I used to work for, the general manager at 11 Madison Park, just came out with a great book called Unreasonable Hospitality, Will Gadara. And he, he hired me when I worked there. Yeah. And his philosophy is exactly that. It's how we see, hear, take care of people and make them feel is true in everything that we do. And even though I run a production company now, we talk about that daily. How do we make people feel from the client yeah. that we were on the call with to the farmer who we're interviewing to everyone watching? That is core to the human experience, regardless of industry. So I think that is what I've learned. And that is what has helped me connect with farmers, connect with these experts around the world, is the spirit of gracious hospitality. You know, and how do you welcome someone into your home, sort of philosophically, yeah. uh, as, as part of that? And I learned that deep down uh, in the restaurant business, people want to be seen and people want to be heard. And yes. that's okay. And that's central to humanity to life and if you totally. can apply those principles to every part of your business whether you're in the hospitality business or not you are in the hospitality business whether or not you realize it because you're in the people business That's so right. those those lessons in how to take care of people and how you make people feel trans, trans transcend everything i love that that is kind of a lesson that you've learned and taken with you throughout your journey and it brings it full circle to what it means to actually cultivate environments and create cultures where people can thrive. I think my learnings are similar to yours, um, although not growing up in the hospitality industry, but being in the industry of people, you know, at the end of the day, especially a few years ago when there's a lot of civil and social unrest, also um, uncertainty around what was happening in the world at the beginning of the pandemic, at the end of the day, it was about how do you create an environment where people feel like they are seen and heard and that you care about them. And, you know, I think culture is all about that and the behaviors that we acknowledge and um, that we actually move towards this holistic kind of mental and emotional well-being and physical well-being of people. So I love that you brought that forward. And, you know, it's such a good lesson in no matter where you are how you create culture. And so I have two more questions for you. If you have one piece of advice, I know we've talked about so many things, I've written a whole page of them, you know, that anyone from this call can take away on what is the what, 
the one next actionable step they can take to um, create a world of regeneration around them? What would that be? Couple, but I'll keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, for for me, I think it is connected at a, at a high philosophical level. It's about connecting back to the natural world and our relationship with it. And I think one of the two of the best ways to do that, or three of the best ways to do that. The first being uh, connect with your local farmer. Uh, if you can go to the farmers market and talk to a farmer, um, establish a relationship. You know, none of us, very few of us see farmers anymore in our life. And they're honestly usually super warm and friendly and want to talk to you and don't be embarrassed to go and have a conversation with them. Um, in your own way, you know, plant some food or flowers. It doesn't need to be a jungle like we're, we're looking at behind me, yeah. but if you've got a small piece of land, you know, just go to the grocery store or go to the store and see what local native flowers are good for, for butterflies and plant a pollinator flower. Um, it doesn't need to be a crazy over the top thing, but planting some pollinators can be a huge difference. Uh, you can start a compost bin, um, depending on where you are in the country. That's a huge, huge step towards the, the way forward. But I would, above all, I would see yourself as an agent of change. We are all agents of change. And one of these small steps leads to bigger steps. And it doesn't need to be everyone, you know, ha it's not about everyone becoming a hardcore, you know, vegan in their front yard, growing everything yeah. tomorrow. It's about more people slowly doing a little bit better or chipping away at it or making small steps here and there along their own journey that feel good to them. And I think connecting back to our food source is a really powerful way to start that journey. Yeah, I think it's a pretty direct way because everyone eats or needs to eat. And I love that everyone is a change agent. Those are so such great, amazing, easy things that people can explore and take a next step on. And then one more question. I always love to hit pop culture, although you've kind of already talked about it. Um, but like, what are you listening to these days or what are you wearing? Or what are you watching? Oh my God, all, all of the things. Uh, <laughs> listening to, listen, listening to, I love, uh, I love, I love podcasts. Um, I listen to a lot of like what's going on in the world podcast. Uh, I listen to, you know, the daily, the economist, sometimes Vox, um, culture cast, obviously, um, <laughs> uh, New, York, New York times, a lot of just like what's going on in the world, which is a combination of geopolitical stuff. A lot of it has to do with climate and farming. If you kind of read, you know, one or two, one or two yeah. levels down, um, I was watching The Diplomat for a little bit, but cause I thought that was be my cup of tea, not my favorite. I'm actually, I'm finally watching Succession, which I know I'm very oh, late wow. to the game on. It's, Dude, uh, it's embarrassing it's the last say. final season. I know. I've been on a, I've been on a strong binge getting back into it. Um, so it's embarrassing, it's embarrassing to say. I know I'm very late to the train there. Um, and then <laughs> always reading, always, always reading a number of sort of like food and sustainability books. Um, that, that kind of thing. And yeah. Um, I love it. What am I, what am I wearing? Yeah. Um, I try to do as much upcycled stuff as possible. This, 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 what is this from Buck Mason, which is a local California brand. Yeah. Um, where are my Pangaea sneakers, which is a cool sustainability brand, um, that uses, uh, regenerative materials. And then also wearing some Allbirds socks, which is a group we work with. 
both Allbirds and Tangaya are two examples of sustainable Amazing. fashion companies who are thinking about important materials innovation, who are thinking about regenerative sourcing, um, and are, I think, examples of companies that are for-profit companies making money in the world, but also take care of their employees and also really yes. are conscientious about their materials and what goes into their product. I love it. You are like the walking, living, holistic being of regeneration, including what you're wearing. I love it, Oliver. Well, I want to wish you well on your amazing travels as you continue to screen your film. Um, and we will make sure to post up all of the links to everything that you referred to in our conversation. And, um, you know, I hope that we will see you again at some point, you know, during our culture cast or at one of your screenings when you're able to announce it. Yeah, exactly. Please, um, if you'd like to learn more, uh, we'll provide the, the links for you, but maybe you can send in your email or whatever, however, Marissa, you think is a good way to do that. I'd love to keep you up to date with what's going on with the film. Um, follow again, Feeding Tomorrow or, or Oliver English, and I've got a lot of updates on there. Um, but thank you again, Marissa, for this incredible conversation. Thank you all for your comments and questions. Um, they were really enlightening and inspiring, and, and, I, and I appreciate them deeply. Well, we appreciate you, Oliver, and thank you, everyone, for joining us in this hour. Our next CultureCast Live is actually next week with our next guest, Jason Cochran, who is the CEO of American West Restaurants, which is the third largest pizza franchising in the United States, and a dear friend. And so hopefully we will see you then. And Oliver, we will see you all around the world. Thank you, everybody. See you later. Thank you so much. Bye.